co-host, Robbie Martin. Uh, I'm happy to announce that Media Roots is officially a 501c3 nonprofit organization under the Media Freedom Foundation and Project Censored. Woo! That means that it really means nothing except that your tax deductible or your donations are now tax deductible. So that's really cool. For those out there listening who like to donate to things but like the tax break better than the feeling they get of actually donating, then this is we're there now. <laughs> we also have T-shirts that we just printed. We had our logo logo contest winner um, produce this really awesome logo for us. So we just got the T-shirts printed up. And those are going to be available. We're going to have a shop I online seen those soon. Yet. Yeah, I'm picking them up today. Oh my really? god! Yeah, yeah. Wait, uh, we're, we're fantasy. Yeah. Oh, oh my yeah. god. Yep. Shout Exciting. out to Fantasy Tees. Yeah, they did a really good job on the um, on the t-shirts I made to celebrate the cremation of care. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Robbie had a cremation of care little music festival thing, and we're going to have those t-shirts also available on the shop. It's just an artist's rendition of the the cremation of care ritual that takes place at Bohemian Grove. If you don't know about it, check it out. We haven't done a show in about a month. I've been moving offices. There's just been a lot of stuff going on. A lot has happened in the last month. We're holding off until the next episode about our World War II one because we want to make it extremely stellar and chock full of amazing and precise information. So we're holding off for a couple days on that one, but that one's coming next, we promise. But yeah, so much has happened. I mean, we wanted to just start off by talking about the Iowa caucus and the corporate media marginalizing Ron Paul as much as they have been. They kind of can't ignore him. (laughs) (laughs) They can't ignore him anymore. I know. Well, they waited so long. I mean, I, I, I always fuck up that Gandhi quote or whatever. I'm not even going to try it, but I mean, (laughs) we've all heard it. I did it on Russia today. I I reversed it. (laughs) (laughs) We've all heard it before. You know, know, I mean, you don't even know. It's, you know, first they ignore (laughs) you and they ignored Ron Paul for, I don't know how long. I mean, Years. You know, I up mean, until a month ago. Yeah, it yeah, like. yeah, it's been like, I mean, how, forever. I mean, I put myself through this torturous daily ritual where I listen to Sean Hannity, I listen to Rush Limbaugh, um, and I, I, sometimes I listen, I, I somehow am able to stick it out long enough and I actually listen to Mar- people like Mark Levin and Michael Savage later in the day. Oh, and God. they all simultaneously started mentioning Ron Paul's newsletter. Someone gave the talking point to both the Republican and the Democratic or, you know, the mainstream media establishment, either either side of the gatekeeping uh, field, um, they gave them the talking point that we all need to start talking about these Ron Paul newsletters again uh, back from the late 80s. And the newsletters were written by Lou Rockwell. Um, they weren't written by Ron Paul. But the fact that Ron Paul's name was, I mean, they were, they were the Ron Paul newsletters. They were like under his name, under his umbrella. And he just let these kind of, you know, pretty extreme, somewhat racist views, you know, <laughs> come come through. The, and then, and they kind of came from the direction of a lot of that um, Republican racial uh, climate at the time, like the Pat Buchanan thing where it was like the white male is an endangered species. That was part of his, one of his campaign platforms. And I mean... It's just funny that for the first time as that I can remember, Republicans are now concerned about racism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, congratulations, guys. Yeah, guys, it took Ron Paul to, to yeah. wake up. Well, it's so funny that they're even talking about Ron Paul's newsletters because every, I mean, Rick Santorum is way more openly racist now than Ron Paul has been since the 80s. Yeah, <laughs> I mean. I mean Ron, but if you're going to say that Ron Paul was racist in his newsletters in the, in the 80s and and you can't deny that Rick Santorum has been openly like not veiled at all 
about his racism. He said some stuff about welfare recipients. I'm going to actually read this right now. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, going. I'm, I'll find I it. saw him on a, on a, it was some kind of like insider Christian conservative internet TV channel that was interviewing him about six months ago. And he kind of makes a statement like, you know, we're letting all the reproductive rights and the, or not, he wouldn't say reproductive rights. What am I talking about? He said that, you know, we're letting all this, the, 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 a person decide when life starts and when life, you know, when life begins and this person is a black man, we're letting a black man decide this for us. And I just thought it was odd. Someone who wasn't racist wouldn't, wouldn't take it into that territory. You know, I mean, that shows that he's actually thinking that. A white man is bad enough if a white man decided that women could, black could man abort like their child, so but a black man, that is, <laughs> that is, that is, that too is much. unacceptable. Yeah, that is just, I mean, that is disgusting. I mean, that was kind of the way he. That's I, really convincing. I might vote for Rick Santorum <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah. I really think Rick Santorum is a secret, just wild pervert. I mean, I think he, his sexual depravity that goes on inside of his own mind must be just insane. I mean, I can't even imagine the type of dirty things he thinks about. I, I just, anyone who's that vitriolic <laughs> yeah. about just homosexuality to me, it's just very obvious. I mean, <clears throat> people who are against, who don't recognize homo gay rights as the new civil rights issue of this era. Why do people think about sex immediately? Like when you talk about gay marriage or gay rights, like people just automatically start defending family values and equating it to somehow sexual deviancy well we didn't take it there you did we're just talking about giving people equal rights we're not talking about their sexual habits in their private lives yeah and th- this whole this whole false notion that marriage is rooted in a the love between a man and a woman historically marriage is rooted in economics and financial benefits for yeah. the par- the partnership of marriage that's what it, it i mean <laughs> it's i mean yeah <laughs> so so rick santorum uh this is on the third he was giving a little uh welfare rant to like an almost exclusively white audience i'm not sure if it was 100 percent white but it was mostly as far as i can see in this photo and he just said quote uh he doesn't want to keep, or I don't want to keep making black people's lives better by giving them your money. Um, first of all, taxpayer money, taxpayer money. Um, first of all, the, that, that is a total myth, the welfare queen, the black welfare queen myth that that's not true. Um, I just saw a breakdown, a census breakdown. Yeah, it's from 84, but I doubt that the numbers have changed that drastically. Um, That welfare recipients, I mean, it's at least half white people that are on welfare. So that's a total false myth that that the GOP likes to perpetuate. And I don't I don't know why it's still held on to because it's a it's a it's coded. I mean, it's not even coded. Let's face it. It's openly racist. I mean, (laughs) to me, if you're really concerned about welfare fraud, why would you go after people who are, you know, like black, black poor people in general and say yeah, yeah. these people are exploiting? I mean, there's people who exploit welfare who are probably um, middle class, uh, white. I mean, there's probably a lot of scam artists out there. I, I mean, I don't and I don't even think that that's an, a major issue or even a noteworthy one to talk about because, yes, fraud like will always take issue. place. Like, yeah, we need to stop the get people off welfare. It's like this. It's just a. That means nothing. Yeah, the whole idea of welfare fraud being a problem is just 
I mean, it's... It's empty rhetoric, and if you're going to talk about black people being on welfare, why don't we talk about why black people are so economically disparaged in this country, and why the economic inequality is so strong, and why primarily black and Hispanic people are, like, more low-income than white people. I mean, that's the real crux of the issue. You can't just talk about how they're exploiting the welfare system without getting to the root of why that's happening, if that is your premise, which it's not even true. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, we don't have to take it back to slavery because that's obvious. You know, everyone likes to say, oh, it's been 200 years. Well, first of all, it hasn't been that long. And then, uh, you know, second of all, you have to think about it from an economics point of view. The United States did so well economically during slavery because of slavery. I mean, that's how we were able to grow so fast. Now, now that slavery is illegal, and now that people in the United States don't work for cheap labor, now that unions have actually empowered all workers everywhere, uh, we have to take slavery, we have to export it. And that's kind of what Chris Hedges talks about in his death of a liberal class model is that when we when we talk about economically competing on a global system, when you know we talk about now we need to compete with the global marketplace, that means that we have to compete with uh, child labor. We have to compete with slave labor wages. Right. So in, in other words, to compete in the global marketplace and to actually compete with these goods being made in places like Malaysia and China, um, we have to we have to basically create our own. Uh, slave. slave labor ourselves yeah. and these corporations have to do it so places like detroit michigan which were hubs of the automotive um manufacturing industry are now just wiped out i mean there's there's no backbone anymore in places like that for manufacturing jobs for that's yeah that's, that's the main problem with like the ron paul the Austrian Keynesian, whatever the hell you call it, the economic stance that Ron Paul has about how just let the market figure it out. Well, the problem is that, yeah, I mean, when we have China producing all of our goods with just sweatshops and all these third world countries producing goods with slave labor, um, it is going to turn into a slave competition where we're either going to have to devalue our workers so much in this country that they basically are paid slaves or we just i mean we use prison labor now we saw bp using slaves prisoners being paid like cents on the hour to clean yeah. up the beaches or to falsely clean up they didn't, <laughs> i mean they didn't clean up really <laughs> anything but they just made a couple the photo ops they couldn't, they couldn't even <laughs> they couldn't even hire real like workers to do a photo <laughs> op of cleaning up the bp Abby, but everybody knows the bacteria ate it all anyway so <laughs> I mean, yeah. What are you talking if, about? If you haven't seen our little interview with, with Greg Palast, check it out on the timeline because Greg Palast tells some really ex- explosive things about NPR and how this guy came on NPR that was funded half a billion, billion with a B, dollars to find out how the Gulf could, quote, clean itself. And it's so funny because I remember coming across a story and I was like, oh, that's so cool that there's like a, an oil eating bacteria. Like I remember last year, I think it was even on Meteor Roots. But to find out the source of that story now, uh, it's pretty shocking because it's total propaganda. And NPR had this guy on giving a total one sided story how the Gulf was like totally going to clean itself without noting that he was given this extraordinary sum by BP to talk about this and to push this this fake uh theory my friend mike crowley a while back when the iraq war started i remember we we didn't really talk about politics very much before but i knew he was of a similar persuasion to me except i was a lot less knowledgeable than him and 
came to his house one day after listening. I had just started listening to NPR before the Iraq war started and I was into it. And then when the Iraq war started, I was just surprised by how pro war it seemed. And I was like, Mike, have you been listening to NPR? And he's like, you mean national Pentagon radio? <laughs> and that's kind of all you needed to say. I yep. mean, it, you know, at times it seems quite educated and, and, um, cultured. And then at other times you're just like, am I listening to CNN? I mean, it's, and unfortunately, KPFA, our local radio hub here, uh, Project Censored and I do a show every Friday morning. We've replaced the the morning mix show. They had to cut funding. They had to cut a half, um, $50,000 from their budget because they were going bankrupt. It's a community radio station out here. And it's really awesome that a free speech radio exists that's completely donor supported. But there's now a faction of KPFA who's like totally wants to streamline an NPR style reporting and cut out like all really essentially free speech, ironically. Um, and they're targeting Project Censored of all people, and they're targeting our show, and they've like started this huge smear campaign against us. Did they use any coded language like we wet less editorial or yeah, things like, like that? Conspiracy oriented yeah. because we yeah, we're we don't shy away from things that are grounded in truth, like nine eleven. And it's so funny that they use that against us because when when we have donor drives about 9-11 Truth and when we had our three-hour special about 9-11, that was the most donations they had received like in any period. It's wow. like people want to hear this. People yeah. want this information. I've so had people mention... You know, you can't just... I don't know. Yeah, and I, I mean, and I think KPFA's Project Censored coverage of 9-11 has done a lot of good in the Bay Area. I've run into people who, when I bring up the topic of, you know... It's things being strange about 9-11. I mean, a lot of them have mentioned to me the, that they've heard people on KPFA. Wow, that's And they've great. heard people either on Guns or, and Butter yeah. or the Project Censored show. And that's fantastic. I mean, it just comes full circle. It's like, even though, we, you know, you feel like, yeah, this information has been saturated out there already. People know it. I mean, there's a lot of people who still don't, you know. And there's and, a lot of people who maybe have seen it online, but to have it validated on a on a network that they trust like that, that offers a lot of, like, comfort. Like, okay, I'm not completely isolated in this insanity that I've been diving into the rabbit hole online in my own mind. Um, there's other people who are professors and um, professionals in, in these industries that, I, that I'm that i hearing right now that agree with me. And I think that that's really, really crucial. Yeah. I mean, to me, I mean, people like Bill Moyers and Chris Hedges have, have been talking about this for years. But the But one of the biggest problems with our media that's even, it's so infectious that it even spreads out to our independent media because... The media, the mainstream media influences, they're the, it's like the record industry used to be or, or, you know, Hollywood is now. They influence independent version, independent Mm -hmm. creations. I mean, in in a huge way. And uh, when, when people take that route of moral disengagement where they, they're like, oh, it's not professional to -hmm. talk about this Mm or, um, then that infects the lower ranks of independent media. People in independent media start to adopt that kind of self-censorship thing where they're well, like... it's also the funding. Yeah, because well, that too, Project yeah. Project Censored lost um, a grant when they tackled 9-11, which, which is why I love Project Censored so much because it's just like, dude, we don't censor. Sorry. Those are the risks you take. Yeah, it's the risk you take and that's what you have to do when you're staying true to yourself. And fortunately, they chose to take that risk um, and a lot of people haven't and that's why there's still, you know, like Democracy Now! and these other organizations that are funded by... The big wigs. Bigger um, money, yeah. So it's just, that's, I mean, you just have to look at where the money is funneled. And, you know, and I talked to our friend Stephen. We had Stephen on as a guest 
I think maybe like six months ago doing false memory stuff. Or how long ago was that? It's mm-hmm. like seen a lot longer, but I I talked to him often about just how we're we're in this new era of civil liberties erosion and and you know, he always kind of tries to come back at me with the with the idea that I'm using the kind of slippery slope fallacy that, you know, we're always it's always gonna get worse and his argument is that it, there's an ebb and a flow where things seem to get worse and then they get better well, and then different. But, but I guess what I'm, what, what I, the part I agree with him on is that I feel like there was a period maybe when <clears throat> civil liberties didn't seem as much under threat, but I feel like now we're kind of going back into like what's the McCarthy era or we are right now. In a yeah, weird I mean, way. I, I guess in the grand scheme of things, you could see the ebb and the flow, like with the pendulum swinging from, you know, first we had the sixties and then we had the family values conservative era and then we had Clinton and then we had Bush and then now we have Obama. But if you look at since Bush <laughs> and, and the, the systematic erosion, and I don't think, I think this is where a lot of people lose this point is that these powers won't be they're they're rein, they're instated now for every future administration every single successor of the Obama administration will have the power the provision now that's in the NDAA to authorize the military to go and arrest you and detain you indefinitely and that's never going away so but Abby, Obama, Obama will never use them <laughs> so that i mean at first it was just like oh we're going to veto it don't worry and then it was oh we'll we'll vote on it but we're going to make a signing statement that says that we you know we're not going to use it we're not going to abuse this it's like well then what if another psychotic individual i mean i i, I think mass murderers are psychotic or sociopathic in general but what if someone like Bush or Michelle Bachman becomes president, they're going to have this power. Does that not disturb you? And at the same time, all this has been put into place in our legal framework. I mean, right now, we're like the McCarthy era plus some other extreme provisions. During the McCarthy era, a bill was passed through Congress that allows suspected communists to be thrown in jail indefinitely. Um, Right now, we have a similar thing, but the new word is terrorists. But on top of that, they now have the right to assassinate any suspected terrorists, including American citizens. So we have that extra thing. But then we also have the technological framework that didn't exist in the in the 1950s or 60s, where now tracking people has become so much easier, so much more undetectable. Now they have the cooperation of all these telecom companies that can, they can, I mean, it's it's amazing how easy their job is now compared to how it used to be to actually wiretap someone, you know? I mean, Nixon got yeah. caught sending henchmen to break into um, uh, uh, an <laughs> so office. Old school. I mean, come on, dude. Yeah, yeah, now yeah. they're just like, oh, fuck, just break into their <laughs> AIM account and check their old, or put a keylogger on their computer and see every keystroke they've ever made. I mean, yep. Ah, yep. damn, can you imagine the power they have now compared to they back then? They don't even then? have to make it noticeable. I mean, it's just all under the radar. That's part of the Patriot Act. Sneak and peek searches is a, is a part that people don't talk about much from the Patriot Act, but that means they can... They can come in. This is this is an example. This is the, one of the more extreme examples. They can come in, steal all the data off your computers, search through all of your private property, and never legally have to tell you that they were there, even in a court trial that they're using against you. I mean, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's never, endless. It's, I mean, it's endless. The chilling effect framework is there. That's what. That's what. I mean, that's what we try to talk about on the show often is that it's unlikely that this hammer will come down on you until you decide to face the government in a threatening way. Yeah. And that in and of itself is a chilling effect because right, that means right. that you will be afraid to do that. Right. That's the whole thing. It's like, even though we were just talking shit about NPR, they did have a great <laughs> segment that was called 
you know, this is how the FBI will come into your house and never tell you and like steal your stuff. And it was like this whole interview was like some guy talking about how exactly it happens. And it's it's going along exactly with what you're saying right now. We'll link to it. I wish that I just listened to it because it was extremely crazy. Just detailing how exactly they do this and how they never have to tell you how they can go and hack all your shit, steal whatever they want, put it back. Never any trace of them being there. Never have to tell you ever. So I don't know. What if the FBI has already come and like searched our house? I mean, it's nuts. Well, the neocons have beautifully executed what is similar effect to the same chilling effect that they had in the Soviet Union against the populace. It's there. It was not possible for the Soviet Union to be spying on all their citizens in all their different territories. It just wasn't. So the most effective way to control their populace was by making people think that they were. Mm -hmm. So what the neocons have done, and they've been influenced by their Trotskyite background that they come from, is that they've been able to create this chilling effect for the real political dissidents in the country. But for the normal populace, it doesn't seem there. It does not seem there until you cross a certain line. So it's it really is a beautiful setup it's like it is a beautiful setup <laughs> it's a beautiful setup and oh. <laughs> and i think i was talking to my friend jeff last night and we were talking about the the power that we have you know we're talking about the occupy wall street movement and the power that we have as protesters and how it's been devalued not in a sense not our physical power but just the power of the message because it's so filtered down and because the corporate media is so consolidated and controls everything um our power is diminished in, in the sense that the message isn't reaching people like it did during the Vietnam War and the massive anti-rally, um, anti-war rallies that were happening. The media was covering them nonstop, um, fairly, because it wasn't completely controlled. And now it's like, you know, yeah, the media paid attention to Occupy Wall Street, and now it's just like it's passe almost because now this election sham is just. Ugh, it's just being pushed on our throats. I just love how like every four years, two of the years of each administration is spent just like rallying people for this election. Nonstop coverage, dog and pony show, complete bullshit. Um, it's just insane. And and the whole thing is just so ridiculous because it's like, so they finally pay attention to Ron Paul. They can't deny that he's a powerful player. He almost won the Iowa caucus. I mean, he he got like, what, 20, 24%? Yeah, I mean, it, it's super close. Yeah, super close. So it's like, it's like okay, since they can't deny his power, they had to like accept it and they had to keep, you know, it was so funny to watch it. My brother called me, he was just like, just watch Fox News right now because it's so funny how they're just trying to like ignore that he is in the top three. And they really were. You saw Bill Crystal and they're just smarmy Bill Crystal grinning just every single remark about Ron Paul he would just dismiss it and be like well a lot of Ron Paul's voter uh voters and supporters are really um Kucinich supporters and anti-war he's like they're really confusing they're really confusing um I don't even know like (laughs) yeah and and they and even the people who are like supposedly the professionals the unbiased people on Fox News they even they use coded language constantly about Ron Paul to just plant in the viewers' minds that he's unelectable or that he's fringe, and what, I mean, just an example that I wrote down a few of them is uh, uh, that I forgot the guy's name. He's one of the re- the field reporters who you always see on Fox News. He said, "quote Let's see if Ron Paul has the viability that many Republicans say he does not to win the election." 
AKA like Ron Paul is unelectable. <laughs> and then, uh, um, Sh- Sean Hannity and other people would say things like, you know, I don't agree with Ron Paul's politics, but his supporters are really dedicated and really passionate. As um, if that's the reason why he's getting votes. It's yeah. like, because his supporters, like he has a really strong online. What? So what? Yeah. There's a coded, the coded language there is that they are smaller in numbers than most other people's other candidates and are overcompensating or trying to juke the system to get their candidate more no, attention. No, it's you who that's- juke the system because that, and that's another thing about the, the elections. It's like, I can't even try. I'm sorry, but when I'm looking at these poll results and Rick Santorum all of a sudden surges to like almost first place, I mean, magic, the magic of the Santorum. Magic, all of a sudden it's like boom, like Rick Santorum ahead in the polls, <laughs> surging ahead, front runner, Rick Santorum. I can't even trust anything that I see with election coverage anymore because we already know that the elections can be rigged. Does everyone remember that guy testifying at Congress who worked on the Diebold machines who said that they were built to be rigged? Greg Palace did a huge expose. 2004 elections, rigged. So even, I mean, it's like you can't even trust that. I feel like what if Ron Paul really did win and they just like threw votes away or or doubled the votes for Santorum or whatever. I mean, who the hell knows? I can't trust anything that I'm seeing when it comes to election coverage because I know that it's completely riggable. So why wouldn't they rig it? True. And they rig it from all possible angles. Yeah. I mean, the that's the last resort. The enfranchisement yeah. in Florida, how they were throwing black voters uh, in the garbage. The um, last resort is the voting machine. I mean, mm-hmm. I saw the lead up to this caucus. Okay, here's how it started. Ron Paul, not mentioned at all. Total fringe, total fringe, total fringe. And then all of a sudden, as the polling got more and more, he won the second place in the Iowa straw poll. And it was like, Michelle Bachman wins first place in the Iowa straw poll. She's the top tier. And this was like five months ago or something. So she became the top tier. But then it was like, well, didn't Ron Paul win first place in the last time Iowa straw poll mm. took place? And they didn't mention they, him at but all? Then, but they did mention it and said that it was because online people yes. like, like yes, um, exactly. faked yeah. it. Because he had a really strong online support. Totally, and then <laughs> uh, and then after that, what happened was the the polling started to get more and more tight. Ron Paul started to rise in the polls for the Iowa voters, and and then people started to say, well, then Iowa doesn't matter because <laughs> here's all these past examples of people who won Iowa who didn't go on to win the nomination, and they mentioned Mike Huckabee, they mentioned Pat Robertson. But they didn't mention George W. Bush. They didn't mention the people who did win. It's so bizarre. And then ended up to, so they so they were already trying to tell you. Well, even if even and and then it started with the Republicans. They were like, okay, don't pay attention to Iowa guys because if Ron Paul wins it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, that's funny. They're just bullying up on Ron Paul finally because they're you know they waited too long to like actually substantively go after him. And then Rachel Maddow started to do the same thing on her show. She started to say, hey guys. I know that your guys are excited that Ron Paul might win because he's, you know, pretty exciting for us in the media, la, 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 la. But, you know, Iowa doesn't matter, and here's why. And she just kept, it was like, who gave them the same talking point? Right. How did that, how does that stuff Conan O'Brien's trying to push the late night envelope. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, really quickly about Rick Santorum. He's, he also said in a speech that the, America was great before 1965. The hell does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. I could think of a few things. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what he meant by that. Um, before we forget, I, we wanted to play the clip. If anyone has not heard this clip of um, the election r- software manufacturer testifying about how the machines were built to be rigged, we're going to play this right now. Mr. Curtis, would you please state your full name for the record? My uh, name is Clinton Eugene Curtis. And where do you reside? Tallahassee, Florida. 
And what is your profession? I'm a computer programmer. Would you please speak into the microphone so the audience can hear your testimony? I'm a computer programmer. Mr. Curtis, are there programs that can be used to secretly fix elections? Yes. How do you know that to be the case? Because in October of 2000, I wrote a prototype for President Congressman Tom Feeney at the company I work for in Oviedo, Florida that did just that. And when you say did, did just that, it would rig an election? It would flip the vote 51-49, to whoever you wanted it to go to and whichever race you wanted to win. And would that program that you designed be something that elections officials that might be on county boards of elections could detect? They'd never see it. Mr. Would you answer that question once again? They would never see it. So how would such a, such a program, a secret program that uh, fixes the election, how could it be detected? You would have to view it either in the source code or you'd have to have a receipt and then count the hard paper against the actual vote total. Other than that, you won't see it. All right, Mr. Curtis, uh, if you had been asked, you or others with your professional expertise had been asked to design a protective program to, that would protect the Ohio elections from against, against such software to fix the election, could you have done so? If we've been asked to make a program that could fix the election, sure, anybody can do it. No, could you have designed a program or a procedure or a protocol that would have protected Ohio against this kind of rigging? No, you have to look at the source code. You have to get probably programmers from both or all parties to look at the source code and determine if there's anything in there that shouldn't be there. I mean, it's a simple program. You're adding one to a person's total. It's 100 lines of code tops. There's all right. If, uh, are you aware of whether there was any protective action in Ohio against this kind of vote rigging through software? I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. You were, you were not asked to assist in the development of any protective system, is that correct? No, I was not. In Europe, have you uh, reviewed at all the election results in Ohio? No, I haven't. Okay. Given the availability of such uh, vote rigging software and the testimony that has been given under oath of substantial statistical anomalies and gross dis dis differences between exit polling data and the actual tabulated results, do you have an opinion whether or not Ohio election, the Ohio election, presidential election, was hacked? Yes, I would say it was. I mean, if you're if you have exit polling data that is significantly off from the vote, then it's probably hacked. And your testimony is under oath? Yes, sir. And the testimony you've given is true? Yes, sir. Thank you. I wonder where that guy is now. I wonder if he's in a, a CIA black site somewhere <laughs> being indefinitely detained. <laughs> I like how just candid he was. He was just like, yeah, anyone could do it. He's like, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Totally fraud. Total fraud. <laughs> total totally fraud. Total fraud. <laughs> total fraud. And the guy's just like incredulously. He's like, when you say we did just that, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> he's just like, we mean that we made rigged software. <laughs> Occasionally there is humor found in, in the darkness. Uh, there was a funny quote from Greg Palast in the Abbey, the interview you did with him where you're talking about the, uh, the pig, the pipeline. yeah, the pig in the pipeline. They use this little robot 
detect leaks in the San Bruno pipeline and they rigged it so that like it doesn't squeal or doesn't like alarm the user that there's like a leak. So it just like automatically goes past it <laughs> so they can save money. And then Abby's like, that's kind of like the voting machines. And he's like, yeah, it's except it's like the voting machines, except this time you die. <laughs> yeah, it's just like the voting so machines, except this funny. time you die. And it got like all serious. I was like, yeah, <laughs> that shit ain't no joke, dude. <laughs> that oh, shit man. ain't no joke. Um, you could nerve gas us all day. We're ready <laughs> you to rock. Nerve gas us all day. We're ready to rock. <laughs> Alex Jones quote from what, what documentary was that? From? It was the John Ronson Bohemian Grove one. Dark Secrets or Bohemian Grove? I, I don't even know what he called his. Um. So I wanted to talk about an article that Glenn Greenwald linked to. I'm obsessed with Glenn Greenwald, so everything he says, I just uh, regurgitate as like gospel. No, just kidding. <laughs> but it's a great article. It's written by Jay Rawson from Think Progress, and it's just talking about how. It's kind of just going along with what we're saying about the the dog and pony show of these elections, especially on corporate media and how, I mean, post 9-11, this absurd saturation that we have with electoral politics and the dog and pony show, especially, I mean, Fox News is the absolute worst, but pretty much every news station participates in it. Um, There's a quote from the article I just wanted to read. The Iowa caucuses are presented as a news event, a mini election with an informational outcome, a winner. But what they really are is a ritual, the gathering of a professional tribe, which affirms itself and its place in our political system by staging this thing every four years. <laughs> it's so true. It's like it doesn't really mean anything. There were no delegates. I mean, so it's just like a little sham. It's just like a weird ritual. <laughs> I have a I have a slightly I mean, I don't even know if I would call this a controversial opinion. There might be some people out there listening to me who might agree with this absurd belief of mine, but I almost feel like Fox News' journalism during the, this process has become slightly improved. Like, I've noticed a <laughs> shift from, like, total lockstep, just you hear the same shit repeated over and over again from this every different reporter. Like, they just all got the same talking about And now it almost seems like there is genuine... Um, fracturing going on within the structure of Fox News where there are reporters who will voice different opinions than other reporters. Yeah, like Judge Napolitano was like all about like Ron Paul yeah. libertarian And that's the Fox Business Channel. So it's still not the Fox News, the main channel, but still like um, Shepard Smith, or not Shepard Smith, what's that guy's name? Neil Cavuto has a show on that channel. But yeah, I mean, you're right. The So that end of it, but I don't know. I just find it strange that I almost... I I hesitate to say this, but I believe it. I think that Fox News's coverage of the Coxes has somehow, this time around, they've performed better coverage of them from a journalistic point of view, only simply because they're they actually seem like they're not sure what to do. Like yeah. they're shaping the narrative as they go along, whereas before the narrative has already been laid out. But now Fox News is genuinely involved in this experimental version of a normal dog and pony show, where every candidate in the primary got a chance to be the top tier for a little bit and then kind of crashed and burned and they yeah, just kept like, doing they it. Don't it's just like, their, they don't have Kane, their money candidate Perry. yet. I yeah. Mean, really. So they're just like going with the flow. Yeah. And I even watched some Fox News stuff where you could tell, I mean, I don't know if they went as far as saying they thought Herman Cain probably did sexually harass people, but even Sean Hannity like <laughs> towards the end was just like, you know what? Like, I don't know like if he did it or not, but like, you know, like, I mean, I just think that once you, yeah, these people are, are, are for the most part just total lockstep idiots, but they're not sure what their own mm-hmm. party's going to evolve into. They're they're having to accept a little bit of this Ron Paul spirit into it because they don't want to be perceived as the bullies that they've been perceived of so long. They don't want to be perceived 
within their own party as being bullies. It's yeah, this weird I transformation. Think they're seeing this weird schism within their party, and they're not sure how to address it. So they're kind of entertaining a lot of Ron Paul philosophies, but also like still bullying him. In, but in a, in a different way. It's like the Gandhi quote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like now we're seeing them actually acknowledge Ron Paul. They're just now kind of marginalizing him when before they just totally ignored him. I mean, just think about in 2008, Ron Paul like didn't exist on the corporate press. He was a complete joke. Now, I mean, if you look at the, the voting for Ron Paul in the primaries in 2008, it was 10 percentage points lower um, and mind you, we only have the Iowa caucus really to go on here, but that really does give us some sort of signifying trend. I mean, eventually he was like 1% of like the total vote towards the end or something. So maybe he had a high showing in the Iowa caucuses, but I remember when we voted or I voted for him in the primary, he like afterwards, it was like he had like the lowest showing. Mm. So I almost feel like his popularity, I mean... If well, the that's Iowa's one even better. Yeah, no, I think it's I think his popularity has grown. I mean, think about that. Even and, more. And, and you know, we of course we hammer down a lot on the establishment. A lot of the the stuff that we talk about's pretty uh, depressing. I mean, you have to find humor in it. And also, there's great hope in this. If you look at the Occupy Wall Street movement, yeah, you know, it got shut down. These federalized crackdowns shut us all down. You know, it shouldn't have been about camping in perpetuity anyway. That that never was really going to do anything. You can't just camp perpetually out in the middle of, of different areas of town without any demands whatsoever. That's So that, in a sense, I'm, I'm glad that it's kind of moving on from that. Now we can go to the next tier of what that is. But the sense that I'm, I guess what I'm trying to, the point that I'm trying to make is that the spirit is still there. People are fucking pissed. They know that something is fundamentally fucked. And that's where that spirit came from. So we, we need to find great hope in that. I mean, I'm looking at the voting age. CNN released a poll of tonight's voters, um, the Iowa caucus, voters ages 17 to 29. Almost 50% voted for Ron Paul, which shows you that our generation is taking over. I mean, these older generations that are trying to maintain these archaic institutions, they're dying off. They're going to die off in the next 10 years. We are the generation who's going to influence the next 100 years. And if 50% of our age category voted for someone like Ron Paul, I mean, that's extremely hopeful to me that that many people recognize that these wars are wrong. Yeah. The war on terror is a fraud. It's very hopeful. My my only counter to that is that, yes, the, yes the, old, the old gatekeepers are dying off, but, but they teach a new generation of their own minions or, or brown shirts, if you want to call them that, who kind of maintain that status quo that they've set up. It's like, so we're still, you know, this new generation is still up against the mutant neocon yuppie. So sure. But it's like, the, it's like the mar <laughs> it's a very small margin of elitist uh, minions who, I mean, we're going to just outnumber <laughs> them so hard. It's not even be funny. And yeah, it, the, the whole Ron Paul, movement i almost see it as a as a as in a way it has backfired all the attempts that conservatives made to try to co-opt the tea party energy to try to rise their own version of of uh, in my opinion their own version of alex jones a watered down version of him which was glenn beck to direct that into a partisan form mm -hmm, of alex jones mm -hmm. they've tried so many different things to try to tap into this momentum this anger you know that's one side of the anger is the patriot movement the um, you know, 9-11 truth, all that kind of stuff. You know, that's kind of where I was introduced to a lot of this stuff. And it's it's backfired on them because they tried to co-opt the Tea Party. 
you know, they tried to marginalize Occupy Wall Street. They tried to ignore Ron Paul, but now they just, you, you can't ignore that anger. And that anger is has gone into the, yeah, the Ron Paul supporters. I mean, look how passionate they are. And you can't They're ignore pissed. what where the anger is stemming from. It's like Fox News is trying to siphon all this anger, and but they still are war crazy. It's like they don't understand that you can't be cheerleading for war and the war on terror and believing that terrorism is like the biggest threat in the world and still try to co-opt this libertarian um, enthusiasm because that's really where it stems from is They're that counter. we realize how it's uh you know it's debunked like we don't support this foreign policy we don't support Absolutely. your american imperialism across the globe if you just look at a map uh I, you know it's it's shocking that people can't realize this i i guess i understand propaganda is a strong thing but if you just look at the heartland theory i mean all of these different countries that we've gone in to take out certain dictators um every single one has a dictator that just doesn't gel with our Euro-American uh, goals. If you look at the New Pearl Harbor um, Project for New American Century, the document that we put out in 2001, not we, but the neocons, it talks about how they need to strategically take out these countries and really just establish a base everywhere in the world. And if you look at who we've taken out, Saddam, Gaddafi, now we're going after Ahmadinejad, all of these dictators just don't, there's something that just doesn't gel with their goals. And for people to look at the the world and the strategies and our foreign policy and not see that, I guess, I mean, do they really think that these countries were somehow like our threats? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they do because because God, we work so, so hard. I mean, we do have the most sophisticated in history propaganda matrix that, yeah. that actually forces these points of view on people. They They've convinced people that Libya was a humanitarian effort and it wasn't had nothing to do with some sort of long planned imperialistic aim, you know? I mean, and, and the thing is a lot of these people too would be like, well, we needed to take out Gaddafi. And if you mention to him, then the imperialist goals that we've had for so long with Libya, they'll just be like, well, that might've been part of it, but we still needed to like take him out. So it's like, it's like, what? It's like yeah. your humanity, your, your so-called liberalism, your humanitarianism has so many holes in it. it <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's, and it fits perfectly into progressives and the Ron Paul fallacies, a great article by Glenn Greenwald, who really, you know, Glenn Greenwald is totally on the same page as us where he, he's completely nonpartisan. He just tells the truth. Shockingly enough, as shocking as that may seem, he just tells it like it is. And that's what we try to do here at Media Roots. But um, I wanted to just read a couple portions of this article. This is actually Felipe Messina, who works for Media Roots, wrote this intro to the article, but it's 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 a it's a good little intro. Um, some of us will do our best to counter the two party dictatorship, recognizing they're both financed by the same Wall Street corporate paymasters with the obvious attendant consequences. Yet due to the grip corporate media has on the minds of hundreds of millions of people, the anger against non-two-party candidates isn't just coming from two-party establishment leaders, but from its constituent voters as well. Glenn Greenwald quotes a Matt Stoller essay about how, quote, the anger Ron Paul inspires comes not from his positions, but from the tensions that modern American liberals bear. Greenwald continues, Ron Paul's candidacy is a mirror held up in front of the face of the American America's Democratic Party and its progressive wing, and the image that is reflected is an ugly one. More to the point, it's one that they do not want to see because it so violently confl conflicts with their desired self-perception. And it's so true, because if you look at 
Ron Paul is so much more liberal on the issues that matter the most to me, at least civil liberties and our imperialism, our foreign policy, this military, this militarism, this aggressive militarism. He is much more progressive than Obama on these issues deemed by ACLU just released a little scorecard where Ron Paul scored higher than Obama on these issues. Which shouldn't um, be surprising. I mean, to anyone who right, has been, been following, following him. Yeah. But, but it's still just, I think Glenn Greenwald makes a great point that that's why people are so just angry at him. I mean, you, you talk to Obama supporters or liberals in general who are disillusioned with the political system and who are just saying, I'm not going to vote. I can't, in good conscience, change my vote to Republican to vote for Ron Paul. I can't in good conscience vote for someone who wants to intervene with like my uterus or gay rights or, or this and that. And it's just like, there's a lot of, it's not just like a normal political debate. There's a lot of anger. It's like, they just can't even entertain the idea of Ron Paul being that person. And I don't know if it's because they're, they've been propagandized about Republicans or if it's this, you know, what what Glenn Greenwald's saying, that it's like holding a mirror up to yourself and just saying, this person's more liberal than the candidate that you're supporting. Why? What does this show you about, like, this, you know, what the system? Yeah, it, it's, I mean, if Ron Paul did win the primary, it would throw a whole wrench into what the re-election campaign for Obama would, would, would be trying to present. I mean, he is... Ron Paul is anti-war, anti the war on terror, anti-Patriot Act, and those are all things that people on the left used to care about, but then this Republican would come into the race and who would actually challenge Obama on all these things. It it would be an un... It, it can't be that way. <laughs> right. The Obama campaign is relying on a really weak um, person or who's lockstep or even more militaristic than he is. That's what they're, that's what they need to win. Mm-hmm. They, they're, that's going to mess them up. And I'm not saying that Ron Paul would even have a chance of beating Obama because I, I don't know if, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how much energy he still has mm-hmm. on the campaign trail. Um, and I was even thinking of a imaginary event in the debate where, you know, Ron Paul and him would be standing on stage together and then Obama <laughs> would say, Sir, you you know, you have said that you do not support the Civil Rights Act, and uh, if it were not for the Civil Rights Act, I would not be standing here tonight debating with you. I would not yeah. have been able to be at this position. I mean, that just alone could sink Ron Paul. I mean, he there are a lot of Achilles heels that he has that I don't think people realize that, yes, he's so great on these issues, but certain things he are weaknesses. I mean, the, his oh, position yeah. on the Civil Rights Act... You're going to have a very hard time explaining that to people who support the civil rights. That's why we said in the last episode, if nothing else, it would just be a giant social experiment. Because in our opinion, like things are just going to get worse with Obama. We're not saying that Ron Paul is going to do anything that he said he's going to do. But why not just try to <laughs> it would be incredible to see yeah, him and Obama up against each other. I think that would be really, really crazy. Yeah. If people I mean, it would it, just in the same way that Ron Paul is disrupting the whole Republican. Mm hmm. Um, flow of things he'd also be i mean he would disrupt for good the way that american it would be like ross perot on steroids it would be like the effect it would have on the election i think so i've been getting uh donation pleads from barack obama and michelle obama like on the daily and i don't know why because i keep trying to remove myself from their email list telling them i don't i don't want to pay a dime to people who are mass murderers and support torture but yeah it just keeps coming and they're so disgusting the first one just said, 
Hey, Abby, you know, we don't take a dime from DC lobbyists or special interest PACs. Never have and never will. Really? Because that's so funny because Goldman Sachs basically funded your last campaign. (laughs) So does taking bribes from lobbyists? I mean, what does that mean? You don't take a dime from special interest groups or lobbyists. What does that mean when people just straight up give you bribes? Mm -hmm. Is that not... I, I guess I don't know. Like, is that just under the table or something? Because it's all pretty much on open secrets, and yeah. you can see who funded your campaign. It's very, very blatant. So I don't. And putting lobbyists in key positions of your administration is somehow different as well. Yeah, it's just strange. It's it's yeah. They're I mean they're they're theorized to make a billion dollars for the campaign um, coming up. And I mean, if do you need any more convincing than if people are willing to put that much money behind him from wall street and all these different things no, that Robbie, means it's that they all want... coming from us it's all coming from small donations from people like us he doesn't get a dime from wall street i mean that means that the status um, quo is more behind him than whoever any of the republicans are this time around mm-hmm. and i think that speaks volumes yeah. i mean i mean i don't know if they're going to start backing romney i don't think a lot of these big corporations think he has a chance of winning and, and i don't think he does he's he seems like a total moron robot and plus, he's Mormon, and I just don't think a lot of Christians will end up voting for a Mormon. Yeah. I really don't. Yeah. The Mormon religion to them is not favorable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just not. Right. Um, I wonder how many Mormons are in this country. I, I don't know. It would be an interesting statistic. Um, I want, in the last episode, we talked about the Senate passing the NDAA provision, and a lot of stuff's happened since then. <laughs> That I wanted to kind of fill everyone in, and I'm sure everyone's heard that the National Defense Authorization Act passed. Obama signed that shit into law on New Year's Eve while everyone was partying their asses off and were paying no attention. That's when he quietly signed away our right Sixth Amendment, posse commentatus, pretty much giving the military complete control to arrest and detain anyone anywhere in the world indefinitely, hold them without charges forever. So, you know, like Charles Sullivan's proverbial frog brought to a boil in a slow, slow boil in a pot, um, you know, the loss of these freedoms go unnoticed until it's too late. During the Bush administration, he tried to pass the Military Commissions Act, which suspended, like basically did the same thing that this act does. Um, And there was such an uproar, I remember, from like the blogosphere. Everyone was just like, this act is crazy. It would suspend habeas corpus. This is fucking nuts. We can't let this happen. And there was such an uproar about it that it just, it got the kibosh on it. And it's just so interesting that here we are under the Obama administration. There's a very similar thing. It's actually more far reaching than that even was. And it just slowly ushered into this provision of the, of the, the spending bill and just quietly passed. It just makes me think about SOPA, the Stop Online Piracy Act that's also being uh, debated right now, it makes me think that, you know, this huge uproar against it, GoDaddy's, like, all these people are transferring their domains and all these companies are coming out against it. And we'll talk a little bit about SOPA in a second, but it makes me think that in a couple of years, there'll be a similar piece of legislation after it's kind of died down that's just going to get ushered through. It's just, it's just bizarre that this can happen and that no one cares. Like, I don't understand how people can still support him after this. I mean, so on the 1st of December, the Senate passed, you know, Bill S.1867, the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, Senator John McCain and Democrat Senator Carl Levin, in a closed-door private session, wrote this provision into the bill. 
um, which suspends your constitutional right to habeas corpus. It's a, it's a legal principle. Basically, this is why we wanted to to separate ourselves from England. <laughs> this is like, I mean, this is like the one of the main pillars, the bedrock of liberty in this country is our right to habeas corpus. Um, it, it's a legal principle that guarantees individuals the right to appear before a court of law and be provided with the body or corpus of evidence against them justifying their detention. A detainee must be provided with the body of evidence for why they're being held. If a court is unable to determine sufficient cause per writ of habeas corpus, it is duty-bound to order the individual freed. Um, after the Senate passed this, there was a lot of damage control from the Obama administration. They were saying, don't worry, don't worry, we're going to veto it. We know he might veto it and it would just be a good photo op. I cannot believe that he signed this piece of legislation. It's absolutely shocking. I mean, it's just it just exemplifies how far gone I mean, how both parties are just completely the same. There's just no, there's just minutia in the differences between them now. But Abby, it's only for terrorists. <laughs> it's not for us. You're paranoid. Yeah. And, and the ACLU says, quote, while President Obama issued a signing statement saying that he has, quote, serious reservations about the provision, the statement only applies to how his administration would use the authorities and it does not affect subsequent administrations this just sets a ghastly precedent for the executive role like we were saying before i mean any future president will now have this power it's unacceptable and it further obliterates the posse commentatus act that um that prevents the u.s military from acting against its own citizens um this article that we wrote on, on media roots about it Constitutionally, the writ of habeas corpus may only be suspended per the Constitution or Congress in a case of open rebellion or invasion of the nation by enemy forces. These martial exceptions are intended to be used in rare circumstances when the nation is under immediate threat. The last time this happened was under the extreme paranoia and post, uh, you know, in World War II when we interned the Japanese. We we suspended the writ of habeas corpus when we interned them. It's like. I mean, this is crazy. There's no threat. Haven't we learned anything? I mean, the, the decade-long war on terror is a tactic. It's not even, it's even more ambiguous than World War, World War II. It's like anyone can be a terrorist. It's just amazing to me. Um, it really shows you how frightened they are, though, because the, this is a pretty egregious power grab from the Obama administration. I don't know if it's a backlash to the Occupy Wall Street thing or if it's just more of the chilling effect. I really don't know, but it it should uh, be a cause of alarm for everyone who cares about liberty. Yeah, I love. The, so there's a meme going around about Obama's new campaign slogan should be "Hope you don't get indefinitely detained." <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's uh, so that's that's what's going on with the NDAA right now. So you know, after he dropped the veto threat, he just signed it, issued a signing statement. Now this is just done. Boom, bam, done. First Patriot Act, now this. Um, so yeah, the ebb and flow kind of is missing when it comes to reestablishing <laughs> the liberties that have completely been eviscerated. Yeah. Every time it seems to ebb a little bit, the flow we lose is hard, even, we hard. lose a little bit more rights and then yeah. <laughs> it flows a little bit harder than it ebbed. Hella hard. Yeah. We get flowed up the yin yang. <laughs> um and I just wanted to say another uh, case of FBI entrapment. Paul Rockwood Jr. was a weather forecaster in King Salmon, 
Alaska, who was highly critical of U.S. foreign policy in a post-9-11 world, be, became really interested in um, in the motive behind the 9-11 hijackers and, and eventually converted, converted to Islam, joined a mosque, um, had a, was expecting a baby, got befriended by a very overzealous individual who turned out later to be an FBI informant at his mosque and befriended him. And they talked all the time, commiserated about how disgusted they were with foreign, U.S. foreign policy. Eventually, I mean, they they started talking about how these people should be pretty much held accountable for their crimes. Something like everyone would talk about. Probably all the listeners of this radio show t- have talked about this to friends and family, that they wish that these war criminals would be sent to the fucking Hague. I mean, how is Cheney walking around selling books? How is how is Bill Crystal on TV laughing like a maniac uh, talking about the Iowa caucus? I mean, yeah, we've all talked about this. And unfortunately, you know, the FBI likes to prey on mentally unstable and weak and economically down and out individuals and manipulate them into becoming, quote unquote, terrorists so they can justify this domestic war, the domestic front of the war on terror. And so what ended up happening, this poor guy, I mean, yeah, he's a fucking idiot, okay? He basically ended up giving a list of names that he thought people should be killed for war crimes and stuff to this guy. And the guy offered him money to give him this list. He offered him $8,000 and the the guy's just like, you know, it was really dumb now that I look back on it. Yeah, it was obviously a complete setup. He's like, but I needed money and I was just planning on skipping town with my wife so I could like raise my child. And it just got me thinking, yeah, you know, the guy is an idiot um but at the same time we're using the same tactics the fbi uses the same tactics that suicide bomber recruitments recruiters do they prey on mentally unstable economically down and out people who have like nothing to live for and convince them to commit suicide bombings for money and this is pretty much the fbi is just like doing the same thing it's totally despicable they're just like going around and like creating terrorists it's like a complete it's just a total farce this guy would have never done this without being coerced for over a year this fbi informant was probably getting paid a hundred thousand dollars at least i mean for that period of time that he was like wasting on this guy to try to get him to give him a list of names really so that's what we're doing in the on the domestic front of the war on terror is like totally trying our best to create statistics for terrorism so you can scroll it on a bottom third on fox like arrested another terror suspect it's just like it just made me sick to think of the tactics that they use is is pretty similar to the people that were supposedly fighting the war on against. Suicide bomber recruiters, suicide bombers. It's the same tactics, and it's totally immoral and despicable. You know, when we hear Adam Kokesh interviewed this this Obama supporter at, at the caucus who was talking about, um, you know, why she was supporting Obama and stuff. And... I don't even know why I brought that up, but hold, hold on a second. I wanted to, I forgot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Rupert Murdoch even supports the indefinite detention. He tweeted, Obama's decision on indefinite detention, very good or something. <laughs> like uh, Rupert Murdoch on Twitter is hilarious because he doesn't know how to use it. And he keeps just tweeting at symbols with like nothing else. <laughs> but I love that he like tweeted like, Yes, like Obama did the right thing. Like very courageous decision, Obama. It's like, dude, when Rupert Murdoch's supporting you, then you know you're fucked. Um, <laughs> oh, so I I just wanted to remind. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. 
So the, I know I brought up the, the Obama supporter girl. She said, well, Obama ended the Iraq war. And Adam Kokesh kindly reminded her that it, actually Obama wanted to extend the Iraq war, but he had to adhere to the Bush withdrawal deadline that he had made already in an agreement with the Iraqi interim government that said that they needed to be out by, by the end of 2011. Obama tried to extend that, couldn't do it. That's why, quote, the war's over, even though we already know that troop removal numbers mean absolutely nothing because we now have privatized our entire armed forces. At least half of our armed forces are now private mercenary armies. And aside from that, hold on, our phone's ringing. Aside from that, we now fight with armed drones. Armed drones now just kill people and go out and do these missions. So it's like unmanned drones are now fighting our military um, operations and private mercenary armies. So troop removal withdrawal numbers uh, doesn't really hold water to me um, because we don't know really how much of that has been outsourced pretty much by other entities. And there was just a Washington Post article about the emerging global apparatus for drone killing that has that Obama has developed in the last three years. Um, In the space of three years, the administration's built an extensive apparatus for using drones to carry out targeted killings of suspected terrorists and stealth surveillance of other adversaries. The apparatus involves dozens of secret facilities, including two operational hubs on the East Coast, virtual Air Force cockpits in the Southwest, and clandestine bases in at least six countries on two continents. Uh... You know, other commanders in chief have presided over wars with far higher casualty counts, but no president has ever relied so extensively on the secret killing of individuals to advance the nation's security goals. That's the most disturbing part. Yeah, maybe under Obama, the the rate of deaths at war for our troops have been lower. But like, I mean, we're fighting clandestine wars now. This is the future of war. Totally secretive, clandestine, fought by drones. Drones can be nano-sized now. I mean, it's a very scary precedent to set. It's really, really scary. I would rather have battle fought out mano e mano. I mean, it's, to me, it's just completely unfair. It's just gross. I, I hate. I hate that we're fighting these robot wars now. It's like we can't. There's just like no accountability. It's just like send a drone out and blow up a bunch of houses and. And then just call anyone that dies in a drone attack an enemy combatant and case closed. I mean, it's disgusting. But we can't forget that any troop removal is just pretty much because we've replaced the troops with with armed forces that are privatized in conjunction with, with the drones. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening to this broadcast. You guys are all awesome. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, definitely tune in to... To future broadcasts, sign up um, to get our monthly newsletter on MediaRoots.org. Go to MediaRoots.org to check out all of our news. I know we've kind of been lagged on updating just because we've been in the transition process, but we're back in full effect. So definitely go to the site, check out our SoundCloud account for all of our radio broadcasts. We also feature um, music mixes. Uh, DJ Atop does some really awesome mixes for us bi-monthly, so check those out. And uh, donate to MediaRoots.org. Tax deductible, baby. Keep supporting grassroots projects like this to keep going. So now that we have these t-shirts in, um, every $40 donation or more, you can have a choice now of either music from Robbie's record label, recordlabelrecord.org, my art website, abbymartin.org, or now MediaRoots t-shirt. So 
you can have your choice of any of those things and you can pick your size of the t-shirt and it's come it comes in white or beige so check that out you guys are awesome have a wonderful weekend and omg we forgot to say that obama himself is the one (laughs) who required the wording of indefinite detention so chank uger is actually going to break it down right now the guy from the young turks does a great analysis yeah the uh the clip, I mean, the only evidence that's out there that I've seen a lot of people trying to deny and brush under the rug is that Carl Levin, the guy who co-sponsored the bill with McCain or the amendment with McCain, admits that it wasn't even him that came up with the wording, that it was the administration well, where, that the Obama administration has that Obama it. himself said no, that's not true, or have just his no, loyalists exactly. and apologists said no. Nah, 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 nah. Yeah, I mean, you would think if someone, but the thing is, the charge was so minimized. I mean, the media didn't even talk about it. You know, no, no. The media framed it in such a way to make a, to misdirect you into thinking that, well, Obama has the chance to veto this bill that he may or may not disagree with, but, the, but like you just said, he was the one who requested yeah. it to be that way. So yeah, here's the yeah. clip. Defense Authorization Act uh, has basically made it through Congress. They've got agreement on it. And uh, it what it does is it allows for indefinite detentions of um, enemy combatants. The military gets to decide who's an enemy combatant. And it, it operates on U.S. soil and can apply to American citizens. So it's horrible. It destroys the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendments, and uh, Posse Comitatus Act becomes uh, irrelevant. That means the military can't act within the United States. And plus, it really goes to the foundation of Western law in questioning habeas corpus. And Congress, as we just told you, has agreed, but President Obama was threatening a veto. And we were at least happy that President Obama was on that side of the issue. But some people have been dissenting voices, including John Wood of Change.org, saying, no, wait a minute, the president is objecting uh, to uh, Section 1032 of this bill, not 1031, that is the portion about it applying to United States citizens on U.S. soil, et cetera. So you're giving him credit for the wrong things. In fact, Glenn Greenwald at Salon has also written about that and saying the president actually wants more power, not less power, and his veto threat is not something that is done to protect our civil liberties. Well, uh, those were all interesting theories until Senator Carl Levin uh, went on the floor of Congress and told us, at least based on what he's saying here, if he's telling the truth, that in fact President Obama wanted it to be the exact opposite, not that. He thought it had too much power in the bill, but that the executive should have more power. Let's let Carl Levin explain. The administration asked us to remove the language which says that U.S. citizens and lawful residents would not be subject to this section. Is the senator familiar with the fact that it was the administration that asked us to remove the very language which we had in the bill which passed the committee and that we removed it at the request of the administration that would have said the app that this determination would not apply to U.S. citizens and lawful residents. Now, Senator Levin is the guy who crafted that uh, portion of the bill. And if he's telling the truth here, he's saying President Obama came in and said, no, 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 I want to make this bill even, well, he wouldn't put it this way, I would even worse, even more of an abuse of civil liberties by making sure that I can also indefinitely detain United States citizens. That's the worst part of the bill. If Senator Levin is right about what happened there, then President Obama is, again, not on the right side of this issue. He's on the wrong side of the issue. And then he wanted to do the veto threat 
so that he could have more power, not less power, and abuse our Constitution and our civil liberties more, not less. Well, I mean, that's so disappointing that I, I can't take it anymore. I mean, I, so what does that mean that I can't take it? I mean, you've seen me criticize President Obama over and over again. It's not that I'm shy about that. It's that if this is true, I almost literally don't see the point of supporting President Obama anymore. I, I'm not mincing words. I don't see the point. And somebody will have to try to figure out, you know, I guess go ahead and try to convince me, write comments, send us emails through theyoungturks.com, participate through current.com slash theyoungturks. You tell me why I'm supposed to vote for this guy. But if he really, this so-called constitutional law professor, has such little respect for our Constitution that he's willing to shred it like that, well, he's, in some ways, he's worse than a Republican. Why? Now, first of all, I think Newt Gingrich is a danger to the Republic, right? But is Newt Gingrich going to propose something worse than indefinitely detaining American citizens without a trial? I, I'm not sure I can think of anything worse. Is he going to propose or do something worse than kill United States citizens abroad without a trial, which is what uh, President Obama has done with drone strikes? I, I, I'm not sure I can imagine something worse. So, and then the really harmful part of President Obama is he totally gets, unfortunately, a large portion of the left to stand down. Oh, no, 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 but you don't understand. Congress is so important. He couldn't get beyond Congress. Well, here's Senator Levin. Again, if he's telling the truth, saying, no, 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 he went to Congress and said, you're not right-wing enough. I need you to be far more right-wing. And so while when Bush was in charge, Congress, in majorities, didn't have majorities, he didn't give a damn, he got everything he wanted. Back then, the president was incredibly strong. Now you're going to get me to believe the president is incredibly weak and has to do everything the Republicans tell him to do? No, he wants to do it. That's what makes me particularly sick. Let's hope that Senator Levin is a liar. But I don't think so. It doesn't look like it at the moment being.